Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update. In partnership with justiceinfo.net. All rise. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. We wanted to catch up on Myanmar, which has been dominating the news headlines. More than 60 protesters have reportedly been killed and around 2,000 people have been detained. This is all since the February 1st military coup against Aung San Suu Kyi's government. It feels like we're in a bit of a hall of mirrors somehow because it's just about a year ago that I was standing outside the International Court of Justice here in The Hague and you were inside, Stephanie, because Gambia had taken Myanmar to that court over allegations of genocide. And um, we were watching the very same thing because we were watching Aung San Suu Kyi, who was defending the military. And then I saw her sweep out of those really beautiful wrought iron gates in a big black car, passing hundreds of supporters who were bussed in from all over Europe. And they're all screaming her name. So we really wanted to look at what the coup means for Myanmar and international justice. Now, there are a couple of proceedings. There is the proceeding at the ICJ. This is a claim that Myanmar is committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslim minority brought by the Gambia. And then there's also a case at the International Criminal Court. This is about Rohingya who were deported, chased, forced out of Myanmar and forced to stay in Bangladesh. And because Bangladesh is a member of the ICC and part of the alleged crimes happened on their territory, the ICC has ruled that it has jurisdiction. And uh, people who follow the Palestine-Israeli case at the ICC take note. This is the same kind of basis that that jurisdiction is based on. There, Palestine is a member of the ICC. Whatever you think of that, the ICC has decided that Palestine can be a member state. On its territory, alleged war crimes were committed. Then it doesn't really matter whose nationals committed those war crimes, but the court has authority over war crimes committed on that territory. So back to Myanmar, where there's a lot to get our teeth into. Um, first, though, we thought we'd better check back with some of the Rohingya activists that I met last year, and I think you did as well, Steph. So I called Yasmin Ulla and asked her how she reacted as a Rohingya woman, as someone who was fighting the Burmese authorities. How did she react to the military coup? when I heard the news for the first time on the 1st of February was was very different from my feeling today. The first thing that hit me was, oh my God, this was exactly what we warned the international community about. This was exactly the kind of compromise that the democratic leaders, uh, especially the politicians, have made with the military that we had already deemed uh, as a community, as advocates, um, especially people, not just Rohingya, but, you know, the ethnic community leaders as well, like the diaspora, have already warned the international community about the, the, the danger of actually allowing the military to remain in power or remain in the background while they basically extract the resources, you know, dry from, from the various ethnic areas and dispossessed people, you know, taking away things that that belong to people at the same time, violate a plethora of human rights um, in between. It was not a vindication at all. And it was it was this feeling of like, heaviness that, you know, of almost like a frustration where we, even though we've we've pushed so hard for a concrete action to be taken by the international community, but it wasn't listened to and it was brushed aside because there was this appearance of democratic transition happening within the country. But we know full well that it wasn't viable. 
it wasn't sustainable. And, and so the first time I heard about it, I was like, oh my God, I hope, I really, really hope that no one else have to go through what we went through. As we're recording this podcast, all of the events in Myanmar are all very kind of live. There are these constant news feeds. Uh, the United Nations Security Council this week expressed its deep concern and strongly condemned the violence against peaceful protesters, stressed the need to uphold democratic institutions and processes, refrain from violence, fully respect human rights and fundamental freedoms and uphold the rule of law. But that Security Council statement did not condemn the military coup, did not highlight the military's direct involvement in violations against the Rohingya and didn't call for accountability. So looking at the current violence, is there any real hope for accountability for today's human rights abuses against those who may be held responsible, uh, like the military themselves? And to add to the alphabet soup of names, the UN has set up an independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar, the IIIM, uh, to look at human rights abuses. We turn to Letitia van Assem to help us a bit with who all is investigating what and what is going on in Myanmar. Letitia is a former Dutch ambassador to Myanmar. She describes herself as an independent diplomatic expert, and she was a member of the UN's advisory committee for Rakhine State. Well, first of all, I think it's positive that that so many people are taking huge risk to basically, uh, you know, broadcast uh, the uprising uh, live to to uh, to the world. That takes a lot of courage, and it 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 does bring to the world a sense of urgency, which I think is also much needed because it's now four weeks ago since since the coup and usually after a month, you know, attention fizzles out. But it's the citizens of Myanmar and of the, the civil disobedience movement who continue to, to be able to get the information out. That's, that's important. A couple of days after the coup, the head of the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar in Geneva made a statement in which he said that he and his team were looking closely at what was happening. They were collecting uh, evidence and information, and they will have to decide at some point whether this uh, amounts to international crimes, some of what is happening, that they really want to investigate further. But they have indicated that they're really watching very closely, and I'm sure they haven't said this, but I'm, I'm sure that they're probably inundated with information from all sides about what is happening. You are a diplomat, and this is also, uh, there's a lot of international pressure to probably come to some kind of resolution or outcome that is uh, good for both. Now, we in the international justice community have a lot of the no peace without justice. Do you worry that uh, the situation of the Rohingya might be a kind of a negotiating tool where uh, to get some kind of outcome for Myanmar and a political a political exit from this coup situation uh, where um, investigation in Rohingya will be kind of exchanged out by uh, suggesting a local prosecutions or truth commissions or something like that where this is going to uh, go to the background while the international community and diplomats try to solve the political crisis. I, I think that that is unlikely because if anything, you know, what the, the military has done uh, with the coup and its horrible aftermath is actually reinforce the impression 
that they, their armed forces are completely unaccountable, are uh, use, make use of indiscriminate uh, violence and, and also disproportionate violence. You see it on TV every day, you see it happening. So it's very, I think it's quite unlikely that, that it will be possible to consider some kind of deal that would say that there would be no international uh, criminal cases. Uh, of course, the ICC is autonomous. It can go ahead. I think everyone who's looked at the situation inside Myanmar closely knows that the efforts that were made by the previous government to set up an independent, so-called independent commission of inquiry into the uh, crimes against the Rohingya knows that it's it's really, you know, some sort of a face-saving, pretty much along the lines of what we saw Aung San Suu Kyi do in The Hague during the hearings in December, uh, protecting uh, the military, making people believe that there is an independent judiciary in Myanmar that would be able to deal with this kind of situation. Everyone who's looked at the situation in Myanmar knows that an independent judiciary doesn't exist. Sadly, you know, the, the reforms that Aung San Suu Kyi and her government could have done and did not do is to reform the judiciary. I wish they had done that. So let's now kind of swivel back a bit more in detail to that big case at the International Court of Justice. Uh, Steph, can you just remind us of, of some of the broad outlines of what's been going on here? So in the ICJ case, Gambia brought a claim under the Genocide Convention with the backing of other Muslim states. And now also the Netherlands and Canada have said they will join this case. It's in the early stages, but in 2019, we had hearings with Aung San Suu Kyi when Gambia asked for provisional measures to be put in place to protect the Rohingya. They were granted, but it's always hard in these cases to say if uh, they're implementing what the court wants, the Myanmar authorities. They have had to file reports of what they're doing, but nobody has seen those reports, so we don't know if they're actually um, complying and to what extent they're, they're putting measures in place. It's a long way off for hearings on the merits of the case, as this is called, when they really delve into the substance of the case. Uh, Gambia has submitted the details of the case and kind of the outline of their case in what they call a memorial, which is thousands of pages. But I suspect before we'll have a hearing on the merits, which is probably years away, we will have an earlier hearing on legal objections to the court jurisdiction by Myanmar. But there's still no date for when that earlier objection will be dealt with. My goodness, it really has a language all of its own, doesn't it, the ICJ? So I turn to Mike Becker, adjunct assistant professor at the Law School of Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, He used to be associate legal officer at the ICJ from 2010 to 2014. So he really knows the institution and its operations inside out. I started by asking him what effect the coup has on the proceedings. And just a warning for those listening, my headphones were making a lot of noise each time I was asking a question. So sorry. Strict legal sense, it it doesn't necessarily uh, have any effect. The case will continue as long as the Gambia wants to continue the case up until the point when the court makes a decision either on jurisdiction or uh, assuming that the court finds that it does have jurisdiction, which I think it will, uh, until the, the court reaches a decision on the merits. So the change in government in Myanmar because of the coup does not affect the 
continuation of the case, the legal status of the case. It does, however, raise uh, several other questions, I think, about what the case, how the case will look going forward. I mean, the one that I've read about is that part of the arguments that Aung San Suu Kyi put across would be that maybe the military would be held accountable within Myanmar as part of their arguments as to why the ICJ should not be involved. Could you address that one first? Sure. Well, so exactly. That's, we heard a lot from Aung San Suu Kyi at the provisional measures phase about the fact that um, the world and the court and the Gambia shouldn't try to internationalize this situation because Myanmar is handling it domestically. And she spoke at length about various uh, domestic accountability initiatives that she claimed were underway. And there has been, Myanmar has created its own uh, internal commission of inquiry, which has been subject to a lot of criticism. Uh, and there have been a few uh, trials. Uh, but she was certainly trying to create a narrative that says, look, we are uh, taking this seriously. We reject the allegations of genocide. We acknowledge that some other types of abuses may have taken place and we're going to handle it. So the ICJ should let us get on with our business and um, not interfere. That narrative, I think, is undermined here. And so one question, as you suggest, is, well, will any of those domestic accountability efforts, to the extent they exist, I mean, we, I think there are real questions about whether they were serious or satisfactory or sufficient, but whether or not they were, are they going to continue in any way now? So that certainly doesn't help Myanmar's narrative in terms of saying, well, we are responsible actors here. I think another aspect of that is that the coup and then the the kind of steady stream of news reports that suggest continuing uh, other types of abuses now. So we see attacks on peaceful protesters. We see um, disturbing images and disturbing accounts of violence being carried out by the military, by the Tatmada against protesters against ordinary citizens in Myanmar. That also, I think, really undermines the narrative that Aung San Suu Kyi and Myanmar's legal team was trying to present back at the provisional measures hearing and presumably what they were going to try to present going forward. So this idea that the military uh, is not out of control, does not commit uh, rampant abuses on a systematic level, I think all of that is much harder for them to argue when we see these constant uh, reports, uh, credible reports of the military continuing to commit human rights abuses, not specifically directed against the Rohingya, perhaps, but simply uh, against other groups within Myanmar. So this undermines the entire narrative that Myanmar's trial team, I think, was planning to convey and bolsters the narrative that the Gambia's team wants to project, which is that uh, the Tatmada is a brutal, out of control organization, uh, and the ICJ shouldn't have any problem in the Gambia's argument uh, accepting the claim that such an organization would and indeed did carry out genocide. And what about the role of Aung San Suu Kyi herself? I mean, she fronted the delegation, um, presumably from um, her current position, she would no longer be able to take part? Well, I can't, I can't, given her current situation, I can't imagine she'd have 
any role in the case going forward unless there's an extraordinary reversal within Myanmar uh, in terms of the political situation. But this points to the other big questions that the coup raises, I think, which are, will Myanmar even continue to participate in the case? Uh, so that's a big question. In some ways, Myanmar was, I wouldn't say praised exactly, but I think it was seen as a good thing that Myanmar did show up for the provisional measures hearing, is engaged in the case, is there to defend itself. It's always a bad thing, in my view, when a, when a state decides not to appear at the ICJ or in other um, high-profile interstate arbitrations. So the most famous examples of that at the ICJ are, the, are relatively old now, but the Tehran hostages case um, back in 1980, uh, and then the Nicaragua case in the 1980s, where the US chose not to appear after they lost at the jurisdictional phase. And in both of those cases, um, the, those states ended up losing on the merits. Whether or not that's because they decided not to appear is, is a different question, but it, it can't have helped them. But it is important maybe for listeners to understand that unlike in some domestic court systems where if a party doesn't appear, you have a relatively straightforward path to a default judgment, a judgment against the non-appearing party. It's not that straightforward at the ICJ. So the ICJ can still, if, if Myanmar decides not to participate going forward, the Gambia can still submit and will need to submit all of its briefs, all of its pleadings with its legal arguments. We'll need to assemble all of the evidence and there would probably be a hearing where just the Gambia's team is there to present their arguments orally to the court and present witnesses and answer questions from the judges and so forth. And then the court will ultimately have to decide whether the Gambia's claims are well-founded in fact and law. That's from Article 53 of the ICJ statute. It might seem crazy to people to think, well, how can you lose if the other side doesn't show up? But I think given the fact that the court has a pretty clearly established and very demanding standard for what you need to show in order to prove genocidal intent. I wouldn't make any assumptions, but surely it's it should be easy. It should be easier for the Gambia if Myanmar doesn't appear and isn't there to respond to assertions and allegations and legal arguments. If a state turns up or not, or depending on what what else is going on in in the world and what we can see, what's going on in in Myanmar, that, does that in any way? play into how the ICJ looks at a particular case? This, the court has the authority, either based on its inherent powers, inherent authority, or under Article 49 of the ICJ statute to draw what are called adverse inferences. So that would mean that if um, one party makes an allegation and the other party doesn't respond, and if you're not appearing in the case, you are by definition not responding, well, in principle, the court could decide that because that claim has not been rebutted, there has been no defense raised, that those factual assertions can just be accepted, as long as there's some evidentiary basis to support the idea. But I think the court has not historically shown a lot of enthusiasm for making adverse inferences. So I guess by that, I mean the court would probably still have a pretty demanding standard in terms of what the Gambia needs to show for it to get to the point that it's willing to accept that evidence as uh, unrebutted and therefore uh, true for purposes of deciding the legal issue. Um, so it'll be, a, if Myanmar, there's a lot of ifs here, but if Myanmar doesn't appear, then there will be the question of to what extent is the ICJ willing to draw adverse inferences based on the fact that Myanmar is not responding 
to the evidence and arguments that the Gambia is putting forward. Sang Suu Kyi was actually Myanmar's agent in this case. I think that's the right terminology in the ICJ, but they can change agent if they wanted to. Yes, I don't think there's any uh, obstacle to that. The, the, The government would just need to communicate to the registry of the court that an agent is being replaced by another agent. Of course, that happens other times for less dramatic reasons than a, than a military coup. The other question, I think, that relates to whether Myanmar will continue to participate in the case, actually, there are two points that I would make. One, under the provisional measures order from January 2020, uh, Myanmar has this periodic reporting requirement. So they're supposed to be sending reports now every six months to the ICJ about what they're doing to implement the measures that were imposed on Myanmar. And those measures basically told Myanmar to uh, not engage in conduct that would amount to violations of the Genocide Convention, not terribly specific, and also not to engage in conduct and in fact to take active measures to prevent the destruction of evidence that relates to the claims in the case. And uh, two of these reports have been submitted so far. They're confidential, so we don't know exactly what they say. And I've made arguments elsewhere that they should not, in fact, be confidential, that it would be beneficial on several fronts for them to be made publicly available. Uh, But it's so this is an open question. Will Myanmar continue to participate in the case in that way? Will they submit their next periodic report? And then a a different question. So we know Aung San Suu Kyi is extremely unlikely to be part of the team going forward if Myanmar continues with the case. That's unthinkable. And there may be other members who were on people who were heavily involved in the case who, like Aung San Suu Kyi, are now uh, in detention or no longer um, in any position of authority. I think another interesting question, though, is whether Myanmar's outside legal counsel will want to continue representing Myanmar under these circumstances. And that, in particular, I think is a question for Professor William Shabis, who's a genocide expert and was really lead counsel for Myanmar at the provisional measures phase. Professor Shabas has been harshly criticized for taking on this role, for accepting Myanmar as a client. I think the issue is maybe not so black and white. And as a matter of principle, I think it's a good thing for states, even states accused of horrific actions, to be represented by highly capable legal counsel. I think that best serves the overall process of justice at the ICJ. And, and William Shabas is certainly that highly capable counsel, an expert on uh, genocide and the Genocide Convention, and someone who has a very particular theory of how the Genocide Convention should be interpreted. And in fact, a theory that has found a lot of favor with the ICJ in its previous Genocide Convention cases. So whatever one thinks of his motivations for accepting that assignment and participating in the case, I think there is a, a genuine question. Will he, if Myanmar is uh, continuing with the case, will he still be working on their pleadings? Will he still be appearing in the Great Hall of Justice on their behalf? It's one thing maybe when he was sitting next to Aung San Suu Kyi, whose uh, reputation has been greatly diminished, but still uh, has a certain uh, currency as a human rights icon. Will he continue? Will he want to appear uh, alongside uh, the leaders or the the deputies of, of the military coup. But I, I am very curious to know, will he want to continue on the team? And if he doesn't continue on the team, it's a real loss of expertise for Myanmar. 
Well, we're hearing uh, Mike say a lot about Chabas. I can't really tell you how I know this, but I've heard that Chabas is staying on on the Myanmar team. But as Mike says, uh, because Aung San Suu Kyi is under house arrest, she probably can't be the agent and Myanmar will almost certainly have to replace her with somebody else. What we've also seen is there's been some speculation about possible links between the coup and the ICJ case because maybe the military were afraid of the mounting pressure from uh, the outside and that that could possibly give Aung San Suu Kyi uh, a reason to turn the generals over to international justice and free up um, more space uh, for herself in the country. But um, Letitia says there are a lot of interconnected issues that could have eventually sparked the coup. Many analysts are still trying to put the pieces of the reasons for the coup together. More generally speaking, the reason probably has been that the the, the military leadership was becoming increasingly unhappy with its relationship with um, Aung San Suu Kyi, National League of, League of Democracy Party. They felt that they probably felt that you know they weren't being taken seriously enough. That their that that Aung San Suu Kyi was trying to to undermine their rights that are inscribed in 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 the constitution. And it's true that for 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 a long time the relations between the military and the government had been particularly bad. But you know when. On the 8th of November, the results of the election started to come out. It was clear that Aung San Suu Kyi's party, again, you know, got a huge majority and even much larger than, than the majority they got in, in during the 2015 elections. And that, I think, may have been the, the dominant reason for the action that they took, the coup, because they no longer wanted to work with her. They didn't trust her. Then there is obviously, you know, the question, but it's a question that, that has, doesn't have a definite answer, the question whether the case at the ICJ in The Hague played a role. We don't know. And there is an, what I call a known unknown. On the 23rd, I think, of October, the Gambia presented its, its memorial, which contained its findings and its arguments to the court for a finding of genocide against uh, Myanmar. And we don't know what is in that memorandum because it will not be made public, I understand, until after the hearing on the merits. All we know is that it's 500 pages long and that it has about 5,000 pages of annexes. So it's pretty huge. We don't know what's in it, but Myanmar does, but it, because it was given uh, a copy. So to what extent the information and the allegations that are in that report have played a role is is hard to gauge at the moment. It's it it may have been an additional reason, but it it wasn't the primary reason. Do you think uh, usually when these ICJ cases appear, a lot leaks left and right of what of the parties and stuff, and this is quite airtight. Do you th- is that possibly an indication of how bad it is for Myanmar that they wouldn't leak anything of it? Or um... yeah, I, 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 well, I mean, I, I assume that they put a pretty tight lid on this within Myanmar um, itself because I have not seen any indications that bits of it have leaked, not at all. So we'll have to wait until after the hearing of the merits, which may be a long time from now, because. Um, you know, in January, I think the previous government on the 20th of January 
brought to the court with a number, uh, raising a number of preliminary objections to, to the case. Now, these were largely um, exactly the same objections that it made at the time of the preliminary, um, the preliminary objections hearings. At that time, the court rejected them. And it's, it, it's probably unlikely that, you know, the court would reconsider its positions now because the questions Myanmar raised um, had, had already been raised earlier and, and, and were rejected. What it does do, however, is it leads to a delay of the merits phase of the case. That, that is problematic, certainly for the Rohingya, who, who are very keen to see where all of this is, uh, where this is going. And for the, you know, it, it would be great for the Rohingya also if they actually, if that document was actually made public. And that may take a long time because a new date now has to be set for, first the court has to rule on the preliminary objections and then, and then give a new date to Myanmar by which it should respond with a, with a, to um, the Gambia's memorial. And of course, we don't know what will happen, whether Myanmar will actually appear in court, whether it wants to stop the case. There is one indication that it will probably proceed because the permanent secretary of the attorney general's office in Naypyidaw is a woman who was who accompanied Suchi to, to The Hague. Um, she has now been pointed, appointed attorney general herself. She is a person who has a a PhD in international criminal law from Japan. And there may be many considerations, you know, that have been given thought before they appointed her. But I mean, she is an expert in international criminal law. So that may have been one of the reasons to appoint her so that um, because they are aware of the cases that are that are ongoing, both in, in, in ICC and ICJ. We wanted to finish this podcast, which has been really wide ranging over the military coup, the human rights mechanism, such as the IIMM, the Independent Investigative Mechanism for Myanmar that Letitia mentioned, the official proceedings at the ICJ, the case at the ICC on crimes against humanity. Um, we thought that we'd try also then to do a little bit of thinking about what's going to happen in the future. What what does it mean for the people in Myanmar? And Yasmin Ula, the Rohingya activist we also heard earlier, has been involved in several projects over the last year to create dialogue among Myanmar's extremely divided ethnic communities and to speak to young people. We'll have some links of that in the show notes um, if they can be shared publicly. But she told us she felt a really big change in the majority Burmese, the Bomar uh, peoples, since she started talking to them in 2020 and now in the aftermath of the coup. Because um, in the beginning, it's very hard for people to understand that the military could do these kind of things to the Rohingya. But in the coup, they kind of see possibly the excesses of the military and suddenly understand that maybe... Uh, what's happening in Rakhine State is what the Rohingya say is happening. During the ICJ hearing and the decision or the order, the provisional measure order had, had come down from the court, there was so much anger from the Bama people. And there was so much anger and frustration that they expressed because the appearance of Dong San Suu Kyi at the court really, really emphasized the idea that the military's issues are really, really 
an amalgamation of, of issues that represent the entire nation. And trying to explain that was extremely difficult. And that was the hardest thing to explain was that the ICJ is not a process to persecute them. It's not a process that the international community is trying to, you know, do a witch hunt. It's actually a, a process to, to weed out, you know, the, the, the crimes and the perpetrators that have been responsible of the, you know, crimes against humanity and genocide. And um, I feel like the difference of that, um, like 2020 onward and now uh, is a stark. It's almost like I don't even have to explain it anymore. And various uh, uh, different groups of, of um, Burmese people are starting to pick up on um, different international legislations or different mechanisms that can actually be beneficial to them or, you know, understanding the language of um international crimes, um, crimes against humanity, genocide. I feel like it's it's becoming more and more clear that education really makes a difference and, and being able to be informed can shift the mindset. Well, we're really with you there, Yasmin. We also think that understanding these kind of international mechanisms and how they work in reality is very important. And Leticia Van Assam agrees that she has also seen a shift amongst those who are in the civil disobedience movement, the CDM, to be able to understand better this Rohingya perspective. But she's a little bit more cautious about how far that shift actually goes within the whole Burmese population. You know, the interesting thing is that what you see in what is called the, the, the CDM, with the civil disobedience movement that is now widespread throughout the country, is a recognition that, you know, um, the people of Myanmar gen more generally didn't pay enough attention to what was happening against the Rohingya. And more people are now seeing that equality uh, for all ethnic minorities within the country, including the Rohingya, is an essential precondition for uh, making the country more stable and, and, and equal. Uh, so, so that, in a sense, is positive. On the other hand, you have to be a bit careful with that because we don't know how widespread that sentiment is. And the, the Burmese population, you know, over the past couple of decades has been told time and time again that the Rohingya are their enemies, that they should be fearful of them, that they will be taking over the country that because they are Muslims and they, 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 they're out to destroy the Buddhist state. And that fear uh, sits very deeply with many people and it, it will take a lot more to, to overcome that, but it's very positive to see that this civil disobedience movement is stating this so strongly at the moment. But this is only the beginning uh, of that movement, and we'll have to see where it goes. As always, we'll be following all the processes closely, and we'll get back to you if there are any new developments. So let us know what kind of questions that you want to have answered, and we'll help find the experts to find you the answers that you want. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast hosted by me, Janet Anderson. And me, Stephanie van den Berg. You can find out all about the show and why we interview women experts on our website, asymmetricalhaircuts.com. Where you'll also find all the ways to subscribe and don't miss an episode. Do that. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at asymmetricalh. This show was brought to you in partnership with justiceinfo.net. 
Music is by audionautics.com. Stay safe and enjoy your day. <laughs>